Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of New Books in German Studies. New Books in German Studies is a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College. I'm one of several co-hosts for New Books in German Studies. Today, we are very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Benjamin Carter Hett as our guest. Professor Hett is Professor of History at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, or CUNY. Today, we will discuss his latest book, entitled The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Downfall of the Weimar Republic, published by Henry Holt in 2008. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, this is a very interesting book that uh, just appeared a few months ago. Um, But before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and especially to share with our listeners how it was that you became passionate enough about uh, German studies in order to devote your career to it? Sure. Well, um, I think what I would say is it was pretty much a total accident. It's not something I really set out planning to do. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Canada. I was born in, in upstate New York in Rochester, but I mostly grew up in Canada. And I set out after college to be a lawyer. I went to law school and I practiced law in Canada for a few years. And I hated it. I hated almost every minute of it. And I spent a lot of time thinking what else I might be able to do for a living that I wouldn't hate. And at the time, I was reading a lot of history in my spare time, insofar as I had any spare time in those days. Uh, And in retrospect, it seems to have taken me a really long time to put this together. But at some point, I had this kind of revelation that I should quit my job and go back to school and uh, train to be a history professor. So that's what I did. And I went back initially to the University of Toronto and then later to Harvard to get a PhD to be a history professor. And I actually set out planning to do British history, which was what I had mostly been reading. And then uh, when I was doing a master's degree, I needed one course to fill up my schedule, and I didn't want to get up early. Uh, And the courses that were going in the evening, uh, the one that looked like the best bet was on Imperial Germany, which I knew very little about, but I thought, oh, that might be interesting. Why not? Let's do that. Uh, And then when I took that course, it was with Jim Ritalik, a really fine historian at the University of Toronto. Uh, And what really struck me in Jim's course was that, um, you know, lots of things went wrong in German history. By contrast, British history, at least until about the 1950s, is pretty much a success story, which is very nice if you're British, but maybe less interesting to read about. And I sort of started to feel that German history was a bit like what they say about, you know, planes that don't crash don't make the news. Planes that crash are planes we want to read about. And um, German history is kind of the plane that crashed. That's what started to strike me. Uh, So I 
kind of quickly decided that that's what I wanted to specialize in, which meant that I had to really quickly try and figure out how to learn the language. I'm sure listeners to this podcast will know that if you're not a native German speaker, that's a big hill to climb. So I, uh, with some great difficulty, I managed to learn how to read German. And then I, then I had the opportunity to study at Harvard with David Blackburn, uh, uh, Imperial German history. And uh, then I was sort of on my way after that. Wow. Well, those are two, uh, two outstanding mentors to start your career with. And, um, yes, I'm, I'm enormously grateful to both of them. Yeah. And, uh, I also uh, noticed uh, that you're from, uh, upstate New York, just like I am. So I didn't realize that we had that in common as well. Yep. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, this is a book that came out, uh, after you've already, uh, achieved quite a bit in the field. So, um, I was wondering if you wanted to share at all, uh, with the viewers, any of your past work and how that past work might have led you to this particular project. Sure. Um, it, you know, in retrospect, I think there is a kind of logical evolution from, um, each of my projects to the next, although that wasn't so clear to me at the time. Um, uh, I, I, again, I didn't exactly, you know, plan any research agenda when I started out, but my first book, which as with most of us was my dissertation, um, was something in which I actually was able to bring to bear my legal background in a way that I hadn't really expected when I started in graduate school. Um, so it was uh, the book's called Death in the Tiergarten, and it's a book about criminal trials in Berlin uh, from the end of the Bismarck era to the First World War. Uh, and I was particularly interested in that as someone who had been a lawyer. I became kind of intrigued at how courtroom trials unfolded in this very different time and place. And actually, I found that there's something about lawyers that's kind of universal because I would read accounts of these trials and I would think, oh, I know what that guy's doing. He's trying to get a, a delay. He's trying to get an adjournment. He's pulling some trick to get an adjournment. I would have done the same thing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of lawyers culture that seemed quite familiar. So I was, I became fascinated by just how the culture unfolded in the, in the process of criminal trials in Berlin. And, and I made the argument in the book that uh, I guess as a loyal uh, student of David Blackburn, I, I made the argument that there was more liberalization and more democratization happening in late imperial Germany than had often been suspected in the criminal justice system. That was the kind of overarching argument. And then somewhere in the course of that work, when I was reading about German lawyers, um, I read about a lawyer named Hans Litten, who was uh, a trial lawyer in the Weimar Republic, uh, practicing from 1927 to 1933. Uh, and he had devoted his practice in particular to the defense of communists when they got into violent brawls and so on with Nazi stormtroopers. Uh, and in the course of one of these trials in 1931, he subpoenaed Adolf Hitler to be a witness and subjected Hitler to a really merciless, roughly three-hour cross-examination uh, in which he really shredded a lot of Hitler's claims to be acting legally. But not surprisingly, he also drew on himself Hitler's burning hatred and desire for revenge. And uh, Lytton, being a brave and dedicated man, did not leave Germany when he had the chance in February 1933. And people told him to leave, and he said, I can't abandon the working classes. They can't leave. I need to stay. Uh, and so the end of the story 
is then perhaps predictable. He was arrested on the night of the Reichstag fire, uh, like so many others, and then subjected to five horrific years of beatings and torture and forced labor in concentration camps until finally in February 1938, as pretty much a broken man, although he was only 34 years old, uh, he took his own life. Uh, so I wrote a biography of him. Uh, and then from that, uh, since he was arrested the night of the Reichstag fire, uh, and I was trying to figure out in writing this book exactly why he had been arrested. It was always assumed that it had to do with the enmity of Hitler. But I started seeing signs that there might have been something else involved, too. So I was trying to figure out how you could research the paper trail of how the arrest lists were um, produced uh, of, that were used on the night of the Reichstag fire. And then I realized that uh, the question of arrest lists on that night was one part of the bigger and often very bitter controversy about what exactly happened with the Reichstag fire. And so I started to get intrigued by that. And I started reading about the Reichstag fire. Uh, and um, as, as you and, and listeners to this podcast will know, uh, there had been a pretty strong consensus since about the early 1960s uh, that the burning of the Reichstag was carried out by one individual acting alone, the Dutchman Marinus van der Lube, without the knowledge of the Nazis and in cracking down and passing the Reichstag fire decree and doing everything else that followed from that event, uh, Hitler and the Nazis had simply been improvising with uh, something that was handed to them. Um, when I started looking into this, I started finding what I thought were signs that that was actually not correct and that there was plenty of evidence pointing to the fact that the Nazis had in fact done it. And I started digging on this and then more and more it seemed to come out. Um, one thing that's interesting about this is that the... Um, uh, the available documentation on this event has uh, drastically increased uh, since the end of the Cold War, when a lot of materials that had been in East Germany or in the Soviet Union became available to scholars. There were also private paper collections uh, that had become available. And I, uh, at the end of the project, I felt the evidence was very strong. Uh, uh, actually, I think virtually conclusive that van der Lubbe could not have set the fire himself. Somebody else had to be involved. The evidence is less strong that it was the Nazis. I, I, I mean, I think I believe the evidence permits us to say definitively van der Lubbe did not act alone. I think the evidence permits us to say it's much more likely than not that Nazis were involved. Uh, and there is some circumstantial evidence pointing to a bunch of Nazi stormtroopers. But I think it's sort of that's where it is. It's very likely that it was a particular bunch of stormtroopers. I would not say it's 100 percent sure on that. But and and then I also found that there's a kind of part two to this story that the long argument about the fire, particularly in West Germany since the end of World War II, is itself very interesting because it's a kind of microcosm of how Germans and German historians have dealt with the memory of the Nazi period. And it has a lot of the same features of debate um, about the Nazi era and the Holocaust that have been diagnosed in other maybe more obvious areas of Third Reich historiography. So I found that all very interesting, too. And basically, the second half of the book is kind of an exercise in the history of memory. Um, so that was published in 2014. And then somewhere in the course of that book, I guess, it, it, it then dawned on me that there was a kind of theme running through all of my projects. Uh, not being very swift, it took me you know, three books to sort of figure this out. But um, I, I realized that um, one thing that fascinates me is the way in which a contemporary political discourse uh, 
will get into the historical literature and then shape the historiography. So in my first book, I found that a social democratic critique of the criminal justice system, uh, which was a very political argument, partisan argument, had gone right into the historiography and continued to be recycled as sort of historical truth, which was actually, it was not a fully accurate record of what was happening. Um, with Hans Litten, basically everybody about Hans Litten lied one way or the other. People who loved him uh, lied, sort of white lies about what he had been about and some of the work he had done uh, for sort of politically um, uh, useful ends. And of course, his enemies in the Nazi party had lied about him in all kinds of obvious ways, too. And sorting through the evidence on that was a bit tricky. And then when you get to the Reichstag fire, it's sort of times 10. I mean, hardly an honest word has ever been written about the Reichstag fire. Everybody at the time lied. Um, I uncovered in my research that uh, probably the main historian of the fire, a German intelligence officer named Fritz Tobias, who wrote the big book on the fire in 1962, his book was basically lies from beginning to end uh, for propagandistic and intelligence service reasons. Uh, and again, these lies have sort of been recycled throughout the historiography as well. So trying to unpack that was a difficult kind of evidentiary, you know, source interpretation problem. So I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by how these narratives get used and how they crop up in the historiography. Um, so since, since then, I've gone on to a few other things which have attributes of that. I've actually basically finished writing a book with a German uh, friend and colleague from the Ruhr University in Bochum. His name is Mikhail Bala. Uh, and he and I uh, found out we were both interested in a Cold War espionage uh, scandal involving an, an interesting man named Otto Jon, who was the first chief of the West German Domestic Intelligence Service, the uh, BFV, Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz, or Office for the Protection of the Constitution. Uh, Jon um, disappeared mysteriously in 1954 and reappeared in East Berlin, where he seemed to be a defector, and he gave a speech very critical of West Germany and Adenauer and the Americans. And then a year and a half later, he reappeared in West Germany uh, saying, no, I didn't defect, the Soviets kidnapped me. And it, given the Cold War politics of the time and given the fact that Yon had been in the July 20 resistance, uh, everything about this was highly politicized and it has the same elements really in a way as the Reichstag fire, that there's a mystery about what happened that's highly political and is argued about polemically and often dishonestly. And so Mikhail and I found that we had a similar hunch about what had really happened in this case. And so we started working together and we've, we've, we've basically finished the book. It's kind of in the editing process now and it should be coming out in the spring of 2019 with uh, Rovolt in Germany. It's going to come out initially in German and then we're going to try and find a publisher over here. So that's, and then, and then I got to the book that we're going to discuss here, The Death of Democracy. So that's kind of how my work has evolved. Wow. Uh, th that's all incredibly interesting. And one thing that really struck me about what you were saying is the way in which uh, a number of your projects have taken on certain partisan myths that sort of emerged in these partisan ways, but then became accepted as truth. 
uh, a lot of my students, when reading The Death of Democracy, would comment at various moments how they felt like, you know, a big part of the book was, you know, calling into question everything they had learned in their high school social studies class, you know, about these things, you know, about the um, some of its more obvious stuff, you know, because they're not specialists in German history. But, you know, the um, when you talked about the myth, uh, the myths of 1914 and 1918, they talked about how, you know, the way they learned about World War uh you know, one history, they, they had, you know, inculcated a lot of those myths or some of the things you had in there uh, that have changed about Hitler's biography and so on. Uh, or, and the Reichstag fire, of course, uh, all of that stuff, they, uh, they found very intriguing how you were presenting what they had learned as fact to be very different. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, teaching tool in that way. Um, I always try to. I always tell my students that I think that's what makes history fun. If it were, if everything was cut and dried, what would be interesting about it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess if we could start with, uh, I, I guess a real straightforward question about the book, and that is, I, th- I think you make it clear in the introduction, but if you could share with the audience for those who have yet to read it. Uh, how do you frame this book as a new history of the downfall of Weimar democracy? What are the sort of new things that you're trying to say? There, there are basically two, I suppose, major things, um, uh, perhaps related, but I, I think two distinct things. Um, so having written two books about this era, uh, the Hans Litten book and the Reichstag fire book, and about this moment of Weimar failing and the Nazis coming in, I have been thinking about, this stuff for about 15 years or so. Um, and then like a lot of people, I suppose I was disturbed would be one way to put it by the election of Donald Trump to the presidency in 2016. And like a lot of people, I was thinking about parallels and I, and, uh, and certainly also to a lot of what's happening in Europe, to the rise of the AFD in Germany or the Front National in France or Brexit in Britain, or to say nothing of what's happening in Russia or Hungary. Uh, there are a lot of straws in the wind, which in a lot of ways, I think, could remind a person of what was happening in the world in the 1920s and 1930s, a kind of democratic triumph at the end of the Cold War, which now seems to be receding in a number of places. Um, but of course, it, you know, as, as you or certainly your listeners would know, it's easy to make very crude and misleading parallels. I, in no way, shape or form do I mean to say that Donald Trump is Hitler and we should be panicking on that basis. What, what did seem to me both, I guess, interesting on the level of someone who does this for a living and disturbing on the level of a citizen is that I thought there were deeper parallels, kind of structural parallels, that had more traction than a kind of simple one-to-one human being parallel from Trump to Hitler. Um, And I started thinking about those, and then I thought, well, maybe what I can do at this moment is marshal what I know about the end of the Weimar Republic into a book that's basically designed to be uh, relatively short and relatively user-friendly for people who aren't professional historians, Um, setting forward what I think might be a a narrative of the Weimar Republic and its downfall and the rise of the Nazis in light of some of our experiences in the last few years. And 
you know, in some sense, I think um, this is something that historians always do. I mean, I think we all know that historians have to rewrite history from time to time because the past looks different depending on where you are right now. And the experience that you're having right now may make you think about things in a slightly different light, turn things in a different angle and so on. And I thought a lot of the political trends of right now, I think, might cause us to think about the end of Weimar in ways that it has not necessarily always been thought of before. So that's one thing. There's a kind of perspectival thing. And then the second part of this is, of course, there there has been a lot of really interesting research about Weimar in the last 20 years or so, uh, or the end of Weimar and the rise of the Nazis, um, which does change the narrative, I think, in a lot of ways. But there hadn't been really a kind of... Um, uh, overarching narrative, synthetic narrative, particularly aimed at a general readership for about 20 years. So I thought uh, there were ways in which this story could perhaps be updated a little bit, taking account of some of the most recent historiography. So I, I really quite deliberately tried to write this book as a project which would draw very heavily on a lot of the recent work and less so on some of the kind of classic accounts of this period, just to give it that sense of this is kind of where the, the growing tip of, of research on this uh, chapter of history is. So that's basically the project that I set out to do, make, uh, make a, write a, a relatively short, relatively accessible history of this period, uh, really aimed at non-specialists, but doing so by incorporating uh, a lot of recent specialist work to to sort of show that I think the story looks a little different now and then taking account of the perspectival shift that I think we might have since this book is coming out in 2018 and not 1998. Yeah, and um, I'm, I'm interested in both of those uh, currents that you're talking about. Um, but the, one, uh, the first thing I want to follow up on and what you said there is when you talk about sort of how to frame Weimar in light of current uh you know, global political trends. Uh, in some ways, it seems like when you wrote this book, you very clearly were doing that, but you also, in many ways, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of play it cool as you write the book, right? You sort of, you tell the story and allow the reader to draw any of the connections they want to make on their own to a degree. I was just curious if you consciously made that choice uh, or if, um, or, or if I'm misreading that. Uh, yes, I, I did. I, uh, I have to add a caveat because I think there, there's someone here who doesn't get enough credit. Uh, you know, after writing, I guess, five books, I've definitely come to feel that our publishing process often does not give editors the credit that they deserve for books. So I need to give credit to my absolutely brilliant editor at Henry Holt, Paul Gollum. That was his suggestion, actually, to approach it that way, to let comparisons be there between the lines, but be very careful not to make them overt. Um, so when he suggested that to me as an approach, I was immediately really excited by it. I thought, yes, that's exactly the right way to do it. Um, but I feel justice obliges me to place the credit where it belongs on that one. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it's, as readers, we never know the roles that editors play, right? Uh, um, 
Okay. And just uh, then getting into some ways in which, uh, you know, some of the connections, I guess, I viewed between our current political moment and some of the things you talked about from Weimar politics. One thing you get into very quickly in your narrative is the role of truth in politics, or to put it a little bit better, the role of uh, lying in politics or untruth, or as you put it, irrationality, I think is a term you use in the book a lot. Um, just looking, you know, where you start your narrative with World War One and the November Revolution of 1919, um, you know, I was wondering if you share with the audience some of the some of the ways in which uh, truth was, you know, I guess political truth was being uh, so heavily damaged at this time. Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, I was really uh, I was really struck by how the rhetorical contrast always emerges in Weimar. So many people talked about and wrote about the contrast between 1914 and 1918. And those moments, August 14, November 18, took on a massive symbolic weight in Weimar. So November 18, of course, this is the end of the war. Um, German civilians up until this time have only thought that they are winning. That's all the German press was allowed to write. And of course, German soldiers were on foreign ground everywhere in France and occupying vast chunks of uh, the Western Russian Empire by 1918. So you could well understand why Germans would think, well, clearly we're winning. The kind of larger, uh, really economic and material factors, which were pretty much certain to spell Germany's downfall in that war were much less visible to them other than the fact that they were pretty short of food, of course. Um, and then all of a sudden uh, uh, comes the news of the armistice and the fact that Germany has effectively surrendered. And this is a massive shock, which Germans have difficulty taking on. How could this have happened? They wonder when we seem to be winning. Now, of course, the, uh, the military commanders had understood fully well what was going on uh, as uh, people familiar with this period of German history will know um, the, the deputy commander of the army, Eric Ludendorff had said as of August 8th in the battle of Amiens, which the Germans lost decisively, he said, this is the black day of the German army. Uh, he and uh, the Supreme commander field marshal Paul von Hindenburg understood that they were militarily going to lose the war now. And by October, they are pressing the Kaiser to uh, basically sue for peace and try and make some kind of armistice. So they understand exactly what has happened. It's a military defeat of the armed forces on the battlefield. But this is also a very inconvenient story for them because the implications of that seem to place responsibility on them for the defeat. Uh, and, of course, the defeat is accompanied by a revolution in Germany uh, spearheaded by the Social Democrats, which leads to regime change and a democratic state that's basically framed by the Social Democrats in the course of 1919. So in this new context, starting in the spring of 1919, Ludendorff and Hindenburg and some people in their circle start putting out the story, well, we didn't really lose. The army was not militarily defeated. Uh, we were stabbed in the back, as this saying uh, tended to get rendered. We were stabbed in the back by those cowardly and treasonous socialist revolutionaries. There's very often an anti-Semitic component to this. So the social Democrats are often linked to Jews. Um, and so they are blamed for the defeat when the generals continue to maintain the army 
had been fighting heroically in the field and was on the edge of victory. Um, uh, uh, Ludendorff and Hindenburg maintained this position in testimony before a Reichstag committee in the fall of 1919. And then in their respective autobiographies, which were published soon after, they kept recycling the story that it hadn't been a military defeat. It had been a betrayal by treasonous politicians on the home front. And as so often happens with human beings, this was a more congenial thing for millions of Germans to believe than the less appealing reality that their army had been militarily defeated in, in a wider context in which their economy could not compete in a total war with the economic weight of Great Britain and the United States and France. And so they had lost as they were virtually destined to lose. Um, that's a much less appealing truth. So as people often do, they decided to believe what was more appealing, uh, the idea that you know, treason from within had spelled defeat when there didn't have to be defeat. And so this myth really took hold. It was something which millions of Germans believed uh, during the Weimar era. And of course, it ended up being the Nazis who were able to cultivate it most successfully in politics. But uh, it was by no means, of course, the sole property of the Nazis. This was widely believed uh, across the German right and center of the political spectrum um, ever after 1918. So that's, that's really one of the major lies. It's no less than that. It's not a misapprehension or a mistake or about the truth. It's an outright lie deliberately fostered by Hindenburg and Ludendorff, uh, which ended up, from their standpoint, being uh, spectacularly successful. And then, in some ways, just following this uh, subject of, uh, you know, truth and misinformation, you move on in the book later to talk about sort of how the National Socialists, uh, people like Hitler and Goebbels, had a particular theory of politics, actually, that relied on, you know, saying things were true that were verifiably false. And can you, uh, can you talk about how how they consciously approached this as political strategy and how that kind of built on this misinformation that was sort of spread after the war by by other elites yeah both both goebbels and hitler were extremely clever though certainly cynical political tacticians i think there are plenty of people active in american politics today you know sort of backroom people in campaigns people who frame political advertising and so on, who would absolutely recognize, absolutely understand, and in a sense, absolutely concur with the tactics that Goebbels and Hitler followed. They both had uh, about the same instinct. That, uh, they articulated it in different ways, but their instinct was both basically that most people are not, to put it bluntly, very smart. Most people have a very limited ability to take on board uh, the, the real details of political, economic, military, diplomatic affairs. And so you need to dumb it down, basically. And the most effective political dumbing down is to craft a message that is really emotional and sort of packs an emotional gut punch that people will emotionally really be able to grasp and relate to and like and accept. Uh, and to that end... Uh, if, you know, the truth doesn't work for you, lie. 
And most particularly, and Hitler articulated this very frankly in Mein Kampf, in a famous passage in Mein Kampf, there's no point in telling small lies because uh, ordinary people in their daily experience tell small lies all the time. Uh, and so they'll see through that. And uh, once that comes out, your credibility will be damaged. So instead, you tell a big lie because most people in their daily experience don't tell really big lies. And so it will have a force of credibility because they won't think that you could be lying about something so big. Um, and then even if that lie is debunked, and again, Hitler was quite explicit about this, even if that lie is debunked, it will leave a residue. So it will still work for you, even if its premises seem to be you know, uncovered and, and swept away. And so, therefore, uh, the things that the Nazis said about the end of the war, the things the Nazis said about their political opponents, the socialists and the communists, um, of course, the things they said about Jews, all of these were massive lies, but they understood that the truth didn't matter if the lie uh, contributed to an emotional narrative that lots of people would grasp and would be effective in terms of attracting votes. So they, they approached this kind of political messaging with a kind of diabolical cleverness and a diabolical cynicism, but it undeniably worked as similar kinds of things have undeniably worked in our more recent political experience, you know, like the Swift Boat campaign of 2004, for instance. So I could imagine Goebbels kind of smiling down on the architect of that one and thinking, well done, you know, it's, it's, it's a page out of their book. Um, interesting. And while we were on the subject of Hitler, uh, I was wondering if we could use this as an opportunity to discuss uh, the other sort of goal you said you had in mind with this book, and that was to synthesize new scholarship and new findings. Uh, you share throughout the book a number of, uh, or, or a lot of data about Hitler's life and biography and the things that, you know, motivated him at various points in his life. I was wondering if you could share with the audience what you, th you know, how you uh, incorporated some of the new research that has been done about Hitler in the last 20 years as you sort of sketched his character for a broader audience in the book? Yeah, so uh, there, there has actually been a lot of interesting work on Hitler in recent years. Of course, um, uh, everybody who's familiar with this area will know that the for a long time, the kind of gold standard account of Hitler has been Ian Kershaw's two-volume biography from the late 90s, um, which, of course, is a great book or two books and remains so. I do think and I admire Kershaw as a historian enormously. I think he's a scholar of, of vast erudition and always balanced, reasonable judgment, all, all very good. I do think, though, that his, his work is starting to show its age a little bit in some respects in its source base and in some respects in its um, interpretational framework. And there has been a lot of interesting new work that's come along. I think maybe the most important book that's been written uh, since Kershaw on Hitler is Thomas Weber's book about Hitler in the First World War, which uh, really uh, revisits and overturns a lot of what had been thought about Hitler uh, in the First World War. The kind of conventional story was, you know, say what you will about Hitler. He was a brave soldier. He earned the Iron, Cla Iron Cross second class and then the Iron Cross first class for bravery. Um, and he had a dangerous post. He was at the front lines on the Western Front for almost the whole duration of the war. Um, 
in which the survival chances were slim to nil. I mean, the fact that the conventional story has it that the fact that Hitler survived uh, four years at the front was, uh, you know, so statistically unlikely as to be one of the great freaks of history. Um, and Weber kind of goes at all of this. Uh, he he argues that Hitler's job as a regimental dispatch runner actually was a, a much safer one than if he were a, a frontline rifleman. Uh, he was based at the regimental headquarters, so a little bit out of the line of fire. Uh, and as far as his uh, awards for bravery went, the officers gave medals to people they knew, not necessarily people who did brave things, and they knew Hitler because he was based where they were based. And so he sort of devalues all of that. Um, he, he then goes on to some important reflections about Hitler after the war. Uh, of course, Hitler's own narrative in Mein Kampf is that uh, in that moment where he learns of the armistice when he is in a hospital recovering from a poison gas attack, a uh, hospital in Pazewalk, and he's temporarily blinded by the poison gas, uh, he decides then and there uh, that a bunch of criminals and traitors have taken over the fatherland and he will go into politics to fight them. So he's presenting after the fact that he had sort of arrived at his basic, you know, sort of national socialist anti-left perspective then, and he went into politics to activate, uh, to act on that. Uh, what Weber shows is that um, uh, he actually, early in this period, in, in, uh, in 1919, he actually seemed to be lining up with the radical left. He seems to have been a supporter uh, of the uh, left-wing government in Bavaria. Uh, he seems to have been a social democrat. He got elected by his fellow soldiers uh, uh, to uh, soldiers' representation councils, which wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been a social democrat, so he must seem to have been uh, in line with that. He, there's, uh, there are actually photographs of him at the funeral of Kurt Eisner, the, the very left social democrat who was briefly minister-president uh, of Bavaria, uh, and Hitler is pictured there at his funeral wearing a red armband in commemoration of Eisner, a Jewish radical social democrat, not the kind of guy you would expect Hitler to be honoring. So it seems that Hitler's political evolution was a little different, that it was more opportunistic. And probably he swung over to the right because he saw that that was a better avenue for him to move forward. So in my book, I have tried to take account of, of what Weber has to say, which I think is important. I actually don't go with him all the way, uh, particularly on his account of Hitler's experience in the war. I, I have the feeling, I, I basically say this in the book, that if we were talking about anybody other than Hitler, imagine we're talking about just Joe Blow for a moment, and you say, okay, you were, you were a regimental dispatch runner, you were based at the regimental headquarters instead of being in the trench all the time, so your job was a bit less dangerous. So, you know, so I'm going to sort of denigrate your service on that basis. Well, I think that would actually be rather disrespectful of the dangers that even a regimental dispatch runner ran. After all, Hitler's job was to run, uh, walk or run, in any case, carry messages uh, from the regimental headquarters to the frontline trenches. And moving around in the trench system in World War I was about the most dangerous thing you could do because it, it, it would then expose you to sniper and shell fire. So it actually is still a pretty dangerous job, perhaps a shade less dangerous than being a rifleman, but dangerous enough. So, you know, uh, it, it may well be that Hitler's military service was not quite as heroic as he liked to present it, but uh, I think Weber, uh, maybe to sort of sharpen his point, may push a little too far the other way. So in the book, I've tried to kind of draw a bit of a middle ground on that one. 
there are also, I guess the other really important point here that some of the recent research has brought out is uh, there are questions about how Hitler arrived at his anti-Semitism. And again, Hitler's own narrative in Mein Kampf is that this basically started in his days in Vienna before the First World War, particularly there's a, a famous uh, and again often quoted passage in Mein Kampf where he describes seeing uh, what is probably a, a, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish person coming from somewhere in the eastern parts of the Austrian Empire. Uh, and he describes the black kaftan and the ringlets and so on. And he, he says, seeing this person who did not seem to him to be a German, you know, quote-unquote, made him start thinking about what are the differences between Jews and Germans. And then he says he started studying the anti-Semitic press that was so much a feature of Vienna in those days. And he started coming to the conclusion that Jews were in fact an enemy. He writes that after thinking about this for a while, I began to hate them. So he locates his anti-Semitism back then. Again, the more recent research changes this picture. And uh, interestingly enough, Hitler had Jewish friends uh, when he was in Vienna and in Munich. Uh, and he seems to have had a lot of respect for some aspects of Jewish culture. Uh, he even had Jewish comrades and friends during the war. So in a lot of ways, his anti-Semitism seems to have been much less rooted in Vienna, perhaps much less developed, perhaps a bit nascent at that time. And it only seems to have developed, uh, like his right word, political convictions somewhere in the course of 1919. Uh, maybe, again, an opportunistic response, although... Um, it does certainly seem that once he arrived at it, anti-Semitism was a conviction that Hitler held severely, but it's a, it's a later development than he himself wanted to present it as. Um, great. And I thought uh, another major theme that ran through the book was your work here uh, talking about the 1920s as an era of globalization and an era that... Uh, 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 a globalization process that put uh, certain pressures on Germans that might have caused them to support more radical viewpoints or uh, globalization that opened up critiques that uh, anti-establishment parties like the Nazis could pursue. So I was wondering if you talk about that a little bit. Um, I, I actually, I do think that that is an important theme and it's, it's not one that has really featured a lot in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in the historiography of Weimar, but this is one of these things where I think the perspective of now does contribute to an insight that's, that's a bit new. Um, I, I think there's no doubt that there's a lot happening in the world economy and in finance in the 20s and the early 30s, uh, which really is a kind of a globalization and really does put Germany on the receiving end uh, uh, of some, they're on the receiving end of some powerful economic interests that are really not working in the interests of most of the German people. So this kind of starts with reparations, with the reparations payments that the Germans have to make uh, after the war. Uh, and of course, the reparations system is constantly being renegotiated. It's renegotiated in the Dawes plan of 1924 and then in the Young plan of 1929. And then around the reparations, there grows this whole sort of luxuriant undergrowth of other financial arrangements um, part of the terms of the Dawes plan is that Germany's restored currency, the Reichsmark, is put back on the gold standard. Um, and the Reichsbank itself 
is actually partly under allied control and authority and that the law governing the Reichsbank can't be modified without allied consent, which means Germany can't leave the gold standard without allied consent. And then they set up um, uh, the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, which is supposed to manage the reparations payments. To make the reparation payments possible, American creditors uh, start lending uh, German governments at all levels uh, vast sums of money. And so you get this kind of huge transatlantic circuit of capital uh, that is moving back and forth across the ocean. American loans going to Germany. Germans are making reparations payments to the French and the Belgians and the British. The French and Belgians and the British are paying their war debts to America. And then American banks cycle the money back to Germany. And so it goes. Um, All of this is in part a way of imposing a kind of order on Germany, um, keeping Germany on the gold standard, keeping Germany uh, locked into reparations payments, keeping Germany as a debtor, is a way of imposing the Anglo-American liberal capitalist model on Germany. And it's, it's quite consciously a way of keeping Germany from being dangerous because um, the gold standard in Germany is elsewhere, among other things, functions to limit government expenditures, uh, which means it functions in part to limit military expenditures. And the whole system keeps Germany dependent on basically British and American and French capital. Uh, and a lot of Germans are very aware of this. Um, uh, you know, one of the prominent German politicians uh, said, this is an invisible occupation, this, this financial regime. And, and in a certain sense, he's not wrong about that, I think. And, and plenty of Germans uh, perceive that. Uh, and then there are other things, too. There's a lot of uh, foreign investment in Germany, for instance, in the automobile sector. The American automobile companies become active in Germany. They all have uh, plants set up or subsidiary companies in Germany. Um, there are all kinds of ways in which Germany is being integrated into a Western market, but not necessarily to its benefit. The The American involvement in the automobile sector and the, uh, the mechanization, the sort of Ford of the German automobile industry uh, cuts down employment in the automobile sector. Uh, similar things, um, automization is, is leading to cuts in employment in, in mining and in the steel industry. Uh, and then there's the agricultural sector. Uh, like a lot of parts of the world, Germany is starting to get hit in the 1920s by imports of grain from places like Canada or Argentina or Australia or the United States, where grain can be grown uh, on uh, with much greater economies of scale, and it becomes much cheaper, and German farmers can't compete. So German farmers are, uh, in a sense, being killed by the competition of global markets. This um, uh, contributes a big block of people who share the growing anti-globalist sentiment that lots of Germans feel, uh, and they call for tariffs, and they lobby for tariffs, and there starts to be a lot of political mobilization and energy around the idea that German farmers should be protected by tariffs as they are increasingly going bankrupt from about the middle of the 1920s on. And this is what the Nazis are really able to capitalize on. They're able to capitalize on more successfully than any other political party. They are able to make a pitch that they are the party that can solve this German dependence on global forces. The Nazi remedy for this is autarky, and they're quite blunt about this. They want to pull Germany out of the global economy, both in its financial and its trade aspects, and in a sense restore financial and economic sovereignty to the country. This is a very appealing message 
uh, particularly to people in the German farming community in rural areas, particularly Protestant rural areas in the north and east. And it's not a coincidence at all that when the Nazis start experiencing electoral breakthroughs in state elections after 1928, that's where they start seeing the breakthroughs. It's in the rural Protestant north where their message about about trade and tariffs and globalization uh, really resonates. Um, great, and I, you know, I thought that uh, that that was one of these instances where you were able to draw these uh, great great parallels with the present without sort of out and out explicitly saying this, you know, you know, this is this is what it's like. So it was very interesting, and I guess in what seems strikes me as you enter, I guess the the last uh, third of the last uh, quarter of the book is you do be, you have this, uh, you know, long section that you have to have in anything about the downfall of the Weimar Republic about the ins and outs of uh, conservative politicians, the conservative uh, politicians who were not Nazis, but who ultimately empowered Hitler. Um, so you have a lot of interesting personalities here that those familiar with German history would have heard of, like Hindenburg and von Papen and Schleicher and, and, and these people. Uh, I was wondering, of this group, this, this cast of characters who bears a lot of blame for Hitler becoming chancellor, uh, what personality, I guess, struck you uh, the most as you were writing this? And who uh, did, did any of your research about them sort of uh, surprise you as you prepared the book, I guess? Um, that's, that's a great question. It's a really, it is actually a fascinating cast of characters. I mean, I think the personalities in this story are really interesting. Um, I, I think maybe uh, I had two surprises uh, uh, I think in a sense, and, and I imagine it's pretty clear in the book, I think the real villains in this piece are uh, Franz von Papen, who's chancellor in the second half of 1932, and the Reich president, Paul von Hindenburg. They're, they're the men who could make decisions really about whether the Nazis were going to be in or not, and they made decisions for their own very selfish reasons. Um and opened the door to the Nazis when that door didn't have to be opened. Uh, I guess, so part of the answer would be, I, I was surprised in a sense, I wasn't surprised by Poppin because I had already had the sense that he was very much a villain in this piece. I guess I was a little surprised in the end at the degree of Hindenburg's complicity. I guess I had still held a bit more positive an idea of him and, uh, in the course of the research for this, I came, I think, to appreciate further the extent of his selfishness and his concern for his own image and, uh, in, uh, to a certain extent, his fears of getting impeached, uh, which I think became really important in the very last act of this and why he was willing to let Hitler and the Nazis come in. And all of that, I think, renders him much less the kind of stoic, honorable military figure that he is sometimes seen to be and much more um, a very selfish and somewhat corrupt politician whose venal motives uh, ultimately opened the door to Hitler. I guess the surprise the other way is that I feel, I feel a certain sympathy for Heinrich Brüning, who's the chancellor between 1930 and 1932. And he's someone who certainly gets dumped on a lot in the literature. And it's not hard to see the reasons for that. Uh, he, in a sense, his 
his deflationary policies are the things that give a lot of oxygen to the Nazi movement and his unwillingness, and this is something I talk about a fair bit in the book, his unwillingness to accept French credit uh, in return for political concessions uh, basically ensures that Germany will not recover from the Depression and the Nazis will continue to gain from the economic misery. But on the other hand, you know, I have this feeling that some of the criticism of Bruning may, in a sense, be Monday morning quarterbacking. Perhaps many people might have made the same errors. Um, he was a very thoughtful and intelligent man who, in his way, was trying to do the best by his own lights. And I, I sometimes felt, in a way, when writing the book, that he had, he had certain elements in a way of both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, if we're going to think about parallels, in the sense that he was a good-hearted individual, utterly lacking in political skills in much the way that I think Hillary Clinton is. And I think there's a bit of a parallel to Barack Obama in the sense that Rooney was a decent and rational man who I think never quite fathomed how indecent and irrational his opponents were. And he kept sort of thinking he should be able to deal with them and negotiate with them and work something out. And they keep turning out to be people you can't deal with. And I think Bruning was sort of permanently puzzled by that in a way that I also think President Obama was somewhat permanently puzzled by the intransigence of some of his Republican opponents. So that struck me during the writing. And, and maybe with those thoughts in mind, I felt a certain sympathy and almost... I know pity might sound condescending, but something like that for Bruning, I think. I mean, he had to face a set of challenges more severe than most politicians ever have to face. And he's dealing with multiple crises on a lot of levels. Uh, and, you know, I think that's something that has to be borne in mind when we think about his record. Great. And I think, uh, you know, you've given us a really good, in many ways, sneak preview of the book that should encourage people to, if they haven't done so already, to go out and buy it and read it. And just for so the listeners know, uh, the book does take us all the way into the 1930s to the Night of the Long Knives. And uh, so there's much more uh, to it that we haven't gotten to. We haven't even said the word Gustav Stresemann yet. And, you know, there are all sorts of figures in there that we haven't had a chance to discuss in this interview. So uh, it, th th this is a very uh, interesting book, and I do encourage people to go out and buy it. Um, and we have taken up a lot of your time today. So I guess I would like to have us shift to our traditional, uh, I guess, closing question on the New Books Network, where I give you an opportunity to talk about uh, what you're working on now. Now, I know you did mention a forthcoming book earlier, and maybe you could remind our audience uh, the title of that one. And then if, if you have other projects that you've got uh, in the pipeline, we'd, we'd love to hear about them. Yeah, so the, the book that's forthcoming, it'll be this spring, uh, initially just in German, is about the uh, Cold War spy scandal of Otto Jon. Actually, at the moment, I must confess I'm stumped for the title. It's uh, it's in German, and it's it's something about it's playing on the fact that he was perceived by many to be a, a traitor. Uh, so the title is something like Traitor or Patriot. Um, uh, I, I'm afraid the exact uh, formula has escaped me at the moment. Um, uh, but, um, and then I, I, with that pretty much in the can, I am working on something else now, which is actually going to be a follow-up to the death of democracy. 
um, uh, carrying the story forward. I, I actually got the idea for this uh, from my wife, who uh, read The Death of Democracy when it was in the galleys, I think. And um, my wife is uh, much, much smarter than I am, but she's not a historian. And she doesn't generally read a lot of history. And somewhat unusually for her, she read this book through, I think, in a day. And then she said to me, I want to know how the story continues. I want to read about what happens next. And uh, so I started thinking about, well, if I were to write what happened next, what would I write about? And after thinking about that for a while, I decided, I think the sort of, to me, the interesting questions about what happened next arise with the um, a process of getting into the Second World War. And so I started looking into that. And so I decided to do a book, which is a narrative of the uh, steps into the Second World War, starting in November 1937 uh, and going through to the spring of 1940. So the sort of posts of that narrative are the uh, the famous Hossbach Memorandum Conference of November 1937, where Hitler lays out his scenarios for a future war to his military uh, commanders and his foreign minister, uh, and that it ends with uh, Churchill becoming prime minister in May of 1940, which I think is sort of a uh, an end point to a, a kind of politics which the British had tried to carry out against Germany, which had then spectacularly failed, and Churchill was going to try a different formula. Um, so it's going to look at the the internal German politics, the relations with Britain, and it's going to incorporate material from the French and Soviet and American sides uh, as well to try and give a, a kind of comprehensive picture. I'm going to try to do some of the things I did in, in The Death of Democracy. I'm going to try to really draw on a lot of the uh, latest scholarship and uh, some uh, relatively recently available materials that have come out. There's some really interesting things that have come out in British archives recently. Um, of course, there are, there's a lot of interesting material from the Soviet-Russian side that has only been available uh, in the last uh, 20 years or so. And in fact, the archival availability is closing down again, but uh, there have been a lot of really great publications of documents uh, from the Russian side while the archives were open that, that you can draw on. Um, uh, and it's going to also have in the same kind of way, subtextually, a few possibly interesting parallels. So let me just mention one in light of things that have been happening very recently. One of the fascinating things to me is the ways in which in 1937 and 1938 and 1939, Hitler's military and foreign policy people, a lot of them at any rate, kept trying to subvert what he was trying to do and, and sort of keep him on the rails as they saw it. And I keep thinking about that a lot uh, while following the news in recent days and weeks. So that's, uh, that's the next thing. Wow, that sounds uh, great. And I think that sounds like the kind of thing where we'd have to try to bring you back on the podcast to talk about that when it comes out. <laughs> always happy. Always happy to do so. Um, well, I appreciate all the time uh, that you've given to us today, Ben. And uh, I really enjoyed the interview. All right. Well, it was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. And I also would like to uh, thank our listeners. Uh, you all have been listening to New Books in German Studies. Uh, this is a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts, and we hope that you'll join us again for future episodes of New Books in German Studies. Thank you. <laughs>